Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you made it in. Everybody's afraid of the ice and rain. <laughs> yeah. I think they're blowing it way out of proportion, but uh, who knows? I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's good to be back. I was away last weekend at a, uh, a retreat uh, with a number of people and had a chance to meet a theologian and pastor from Sydney, Australia, who's just a brilliant guy. It was fascinating uh, meeting him. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that tonight when we get together, but it was a good weekend, although I'm really glad to be here. It's always good to come home. So why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them with me, to Acts chapter 2, New Testament. Uh, if you need a Bible to use, you should find one down in one of the chair racks around you. Uh, Acts chapter 2. In case you didn't know, the the New Testament book of Acts uh, is a first-hand report on what was happening in the lives of the earliest followers of Jesus. And um, in chapter 2, verse 46 of the report, we're told this, that every day they, being the the believers of Jesus, followed, uh, continued to meet together in the temple courts there in Jerusalem. Uh, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And uh, it's this last phrase... Uh, that I find so intriguing because it describes how the church was having a positive, uh, favorable, spiritual impact on its neighborhood, its its city, its culture. Uh, It was beginning to turn its world upside down, really, changing it forever. And um, I can't help but read that phrase and wonder how, how we as followers of Jesus today in 21st century America might do the same. You know, how, how can we as a church have a positive, favorable, spiritual impact uh, on our culture and turn our world upside down. And so I want to I explore that a little bit with you this morning. Famed Russian novelist uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. And today in America, we're kind of seeing this played out all around us. It's not that people uh, don't believe in God. Over 90% of Americans do. But as a culture, we just seem to be drifting further and further away from God and his truth. And as, as that happens, all bets are off. You know, any, pretty much anything goes. And perhaps more than ever before as Americans, we want, you know, we want freedom with, without self-restraint. We want health and safety without moral standards. Uh, we want order without absolutes. Basically, we want the impossible. And I say it's impossible because without transcendent moral values, societies don't thrive. They can't thrive. They descend into relativistic uh, chaos and eventual collapse. And it's only logical because when you can't agree on what is right and wrong, social order erodes and anarchy uh, prevails. And it just seems that, that America has kind of lost sight of, of that reality. And so as we choose to more and more collectively turn our backs on the divine absolutes that God, our creator, has established and given us, culturally speaking, a, a, a downward, continued downward moral uh, spiral seems inevitable. And yet it's fascinating to me how everybody wants to know why our culture is the way that it is. You know, we see our judicial system Uh, limit God, prohibit prayer, and then wonder why some of our schools are bristling with barbed wire, armed guards, and metal detectors. Uh, We see our colleges and universities reject the idea of truth, and yet we're shocked when the best and brightest of our graduates lie, cheat, and steal with little or no remorse. We watch Hollywood mock the traditional family, and yet we're appalled at the tragedy of rising divorce rates, broken homes, angry, troubled kids. 
Uh, we tolerate the media celebrating sex without responsibility or our long-term commitment, and yet we're disgusted by pornography and perversion and are horrified by the increase of crimes uh, of sexual predators. We look on as some lawmakers rationalize the taking of innocent life and advocate for the assisted suicide of the terminally ill, and yet we're horrified and we're terrified and terrorized by the rampant disregard for life in our city streets, classrooms, and places of employment. Well, here's the thing. America can't have it both ways. There is no safety without standards. There is no moral order without absolutes. There is no true goodness uh, without God. And so as Christians, we live at a, a crucial time in our nation's history. And I'm not, I'm not saying all this to put a bummer on your day, okay? In fact, it's just the opposite. I want us to, to begin to recognize the exciting possibilities and the opportunities that are ahead of us. Because I'm convinced more than ever that God has positioned us as his church, as his people, in this place, at this time, to make a difference. You know, to find favor in, in the eyes of those around us and have a meaningful spiritual impact on people's lives and on our culture at large. But as you have no doubt heard said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. So, what do we do? And we're kind of exploring that question in this series. This morning, I want to suggest three things that I think we as, as Christ followers in 21st century America need to do in order to, to impact, impact our increasingly secularized and in some respects crumbling culture. Uh, first things first, we need to understand the myths that contaminate us, the cultural myths. Now, a myth, by definition, is a popular belief or tradition that has grown up uh, around something or someone and sort of embodies, you know, the ideals um, and institutions of that society or at least a segment of that society. And one of the primary myths of Western culture is, is the myth of the innate goodness of humanity. It's the popular belief, the common assumption that human beings are inherently honest and loving and selfless and generous and moral creatures. It's a myth that deludes people into thinking that they're always the victim, never the villain, always the deprived, never the depraved. It tends to dismiss personal responsibility as a teaching of a darker, less sophisticated age and wants to excuse crime and or offense by blaming those things on somebody else or something else, genetics, poverty, mental illness, race, environment, whatever. It's the idea that the only reason that we as human beings act badly at times is because of external influence. It's not our fault, man. It's not our fault. Inside, we're naturally good. And so we live in what's been termed by some the golden age of exoneration. And yet Scripture tells us that while we are loved and valued by God, the human heart is deceitful above all things. The second myth of our culture flows out of the first. It's the myth of of the promise of a coming utopia. Belief that man's goodness will ultimately prevail and bring about a perfected world order by means of human government. You know, global peace can be attained through the tools of politics and legislation. Ironically, this same promise is offered by communism, fascism, capitalism, dictatorships, and democracies. See, it's a, it's a global illusion, an illusion that deceives us and causes us to place our hope uh, in, for the future in man-made systems of government to solve our, our deepest needs for security, peace, and meaning. And if you were to read 
the philosophers of the late 19th and 20th centuries, you'd find that many of them really believed this. They really believed in the goodness of humanity, and they believed that all of our social ills could and would be solved and cured by the end of the 20th century. And that hasn't happened. Yet many people today, even many in power, still buy into this myth. And yet Scripture tells us, submit to God and be at peace with Him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. The ancient Hebrew prophet Isaiah said, A child will be born, a son will be given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. Jesus simply put it this way. He said, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives it. A third myth propagated by our culture is that moral values are relative. It's a myth that blurs the dividing line between good and evil, right and wrong, and grants permission for every single person to decide uh, his or her own morality. Truth becomes a matter of preference. As the late award-winning author and Christian thinker Dr. Chuck Colson put it when lecturing on cultural relativism at University of Chicago, he said the result of this mythology is, you know, society becomes merely the sum total of individual preferences. And since no preference is morally preferable, anything that can be dared will be permitted. Tolerance substitutes for truth, indifference for religious conviction. And in the end, confusion undercuts all our creeds. Yet the psalmist declares in the Old Testament, O God, your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Your statutes are always right. Give me understanding that I may live. And then the fourth uh, dominating myth of our culture is the myth of radical individualism, um, which in essence diminishes the importance of family, the importance of community, It denies the significance of personal sacrifice for for others. It elevates individual rights and and desires and pleasures to the highest social value. And yet again, in Scripture, we're told and encouraged to what? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility. Value others above yourselves. And so we have these four cultural myths that that dominate, that, that contaminate our thinking And uh, they have essentially removed God from his place of prominence and put humanity at the center of the universe. Together they contend that man's goodness will bring about peace, determine what is true, and lead to personal and social fulfillment. And as I see it, you know, if we as Christians hope to engage and influence the people around us, we had better understand what it is our culture is thinking and believing. We need to know. and, And once we understand that, once we grasp the assumptions by which culture operates, well, then we can, we can move ahead in challenging those assumptions and graciously speak into them. How do we do that? Well, we do that by asking questions. We ask the right questions. We ask questions that actually connect with people's thinking. No longer can we march into a secular crowd and announce Jesus is the answer because most people don't even know there's a question. So instead, we need to lead with questions, questions that make people think, questions that help expose the fallacies of cultural belief. In other words, we have to raise questions that remain unanswered in the minds of most Americans. Uh, the The first question is pretty basic, really. It's the question of where do we as human beings come from? Where do we come from? 
Most people struggle to accept that life is the result of a freak cosmic accident, that due to some unexplainable Big Bang, nothing spontaneously became something, energy went out in all different directions and intensities so that matter could form the universe, and then through an an incredible sequence of random events, one small sphere dropped into orbit just the exact distance from a nearby star. And with just the right and perfect mix of gases, warmed by just the perfect uh, amount of heat, held together by the perfect uh, percentage of gravitational pull, whereby life could develop and a single living cell could eventually evolve. And then over billions and billions and billions and billions of years, this single cell would advance in complexity to the point where it was able to crawl out of the primordial ooze, reproduce, love, reason, and create. And as a result of these random coincidences, here we are today, kind of grown-up germs, you know, no rhyme, no reason, no meaning, no design, just the offspring of a cosmic accident and natural selection. Pure luck is our heritage oblivion our future. Let me tell you something. Most Americans don't buy that narrative. Not completely. In fact, according to a a Gallup poll done last summer, 2012, they found that 78, get this, 78% of Americans don't believe in godless evolution and natural selection. Most believe that God, in some way, shape, or form, has, has put us here. In fact, here's the real kicker for me. Not even all atheists buy into current evolutionary theory. For example, well-known atheist philosopher Dr. Jerry Fedor has written a book called What Darwin Got Wrong, and he's challenged in that book the assumption of natural selection. And he writes this, an appreciable number of perfectly reasonable biologists are coming to think that the theory of natural selection can no longer be taken for granted. It's seriously misleading, and it thoroughly misled Darwin. That's an atheist philosopher saying that. Uh, One of the other most prominent atheists of our day, Richard Dawkins, he admits in his book, The Greatest Show on Earth, that, that natural selection cannot explain the existence of life. But then he goes on and he says, but you know, we don't actually need a plausible theory of the origin of life. Well, says who? Almost everybody wants to know who we are. How do we get here? Where are we going? And the fact is, the incredible complexity and design of even the most basic life form implies the existence of an intelligent designer. And the more science learns, the more evidence there is against Darwin's theory. I mean, why else do you think the controversy remains so explosive? Uh, For example, the advancing research on DNA raises some serious scientific problems for Darwin, specifically uh, in solving the riddle of who or what wrote our astoundingly complex genetic code. Dr. Amir Axel, he's a respected author and mathematician in a book entitled Probability One, writes this, having seen how DNA stores and manipulates tremendous amounts of information and uses this information to control life, we're left with one big question. What created DNA? Was it perhaps the power, thinking, and will of a supreme being that created this self-replicating basis of all life? And many scientists today are saying, yes, we believe that's true. Because unguided natural processes do not generate language-type information found in DNA. Now, here's my point. 
I'm not suggesting we all run out and become mathematicians and, and molecular scientists so that we can argue people into heaven. I'm simply saying that by knowing some of the facts and encouraging people to think uh, and, and think carefully and rationally about what they're being taught and what they actually believe, that just may lead them to consider the truth. Not only that God exists, but this God loves them and cares about them. Here's another question people are interested in. Why are we in the mess we're in as a culture? You know, why the violence? Why the crime, the greed, the pain, the evil? If man is so darn good, why is there so much bad? Some will try to answer the question by placing blame on our parents, our environment, low levels of dopamine in the brain, poor education, lack of government legislation. But the only answer that makes sense and transcends culture and time is that man, human beings... You know, man by nature is messed up. Uh, Even uh, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, recognized the depravity of man. The world we live in is a broken and at times an evil place because it's inhabited by broken, sinfully twisted creatures like you and me. Human nature is bent toward evil. We're, We're born with this sin nature. I mean, think about it. From their earliest days, no matter how cute and cuddly they are, from their earliest days, we have to teach our children to what? To obey and to do what is right and to do what is good. Why? Because rebellion and wrong come so naturally. Selfishness, greed, you know, that all comes so naturally to us. Dishonesty and that sinful bent just follows us uh, into adulthood. Famous English author, philosopher, and Christian G.K. Chesterton once wrote, The doctrine of original sin is the only philosophy empirically validated by the centuries of recorded human history. And he's right. One day, Jesus tried to explain it this way to a group of people. He said, listen to me, everybody, and understand something. He said, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Here's my Reiki translation. Jesus is trying to help us understand that, that we sin because we're sinners. We aren't sinners just because we sin. And there's a big distinction. And inviting people to think through that and wrestle with this issue of sin and rebellion and evil, helping them realize that the answer to the problem of evil uh, in the world is not that we're all born good, but that we're all, we're all born bent and distorted by original sin. It's really important because if you get this wrong, you get everything else wrong. An awful lot hinges on a person's understanding of human nature. But can anyone look at the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut and say evil isn't real? Can anyone look around at the deceit and the avarice, the abuse, the bigotry, the hate, the murder in our world today and say with a straight face that man is inherently good? They might be able to say it, but it's certainly hard to believe. And given the opportunity, I think most people will acknowledge the truth, that we are not. That brings us to the third question that people are asking. That's the question, is there any way out of this human dilemma? Is there, is there some solution? Is there some answer to our individual and social ills? Because, you know, things aren't really getting any better, and it's not for a lack of trying. I mean, there have been plenty of attempts to solve our problems, But again, for example, the the secular dream of establishing utopia will fail. 
just as it has, because all attempts to engineer society by our own human intellect and power, man, we just can't pull it off. In fact, you know what utopia means? In the Latin, literally, utopia means nowhere. And that's exactly the place secularism takes us, nowhere. But even if you look at other worldviews, world what you find is that none of them adequately answers the question. They try, they try hard to, but, but you know, every liberation movement has failed, whether it's liberation from sexual repression or liberation from your neuroses or Marxism trying to liberate us from economic oppression. None of these liberation movements have, um, have succeeded. Neither do world religions succeed in answering the question. Hinduism, for example, says that what you do in this life is going to be done to you in the next. That's a frightening thought to me. <laughs> so, you know, you try to do your best now. Uh, a Muslim, when, when he dies, has to walk over the perilous sword of judgment, hoping, hoping that, that he has enough good deeds and enough prayers in life that will save him. The Jewish person is waiting for the Messiah to show up yet. Contemporary philosophers say, you know, who knows? Make up your own rules and offer your own solutions. Only biblical Christianity provides a confident answer to the question, is there any sure way out of the mess? The answer is yes. And it has nothing to do with human effort or political, philosophical, or intricate religious systems. But it has everything to do with the love and grace of God. For Jesus, the Son of God, deity in the flesh, came to love us. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die. And in him, we find grace and we find forgiveness and we find healing and we find peace. We find inner transformation that brings about new life, both now and into eternity. So when it comes to impacting culture, we we need to understand the myths. We need to ask the questions that connect. And then finally, uh, I would suggest we need to live in a way that convinces You know, it's time that we in the American church today recognize that what our secularizing culture, yet yet spiritually thirsty culture needs, is not a new definition of Christianity, but a new demonstration of it. Our families, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, they need high touch. They need to see us out living what we say we believe. What does that mean? Well, for one, it means that we love God and we love others. That's what Jesus said to do. He put it this way. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But he didn't stop there. He said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And we've said it a million times here. We love ourselves a lot, right? So it seems that, at least to me, that the Christian church in America today is pretty much on board with the loving God thing. But the loving our neighbor deal, well... You know, we hedge on that a little because it's hard and it's complicated and it's messy. Because love, true love, biblically love, in terms of love, biblically, love isn't just an attitude, it's an action. Love is an action. Love is a verb. And therefore, to love our neighbor means that we have to do something to serve them, to help them in whatever ways that we can. And just so you know, by neighbor, Jesus meant everybody around us. Everybody who comes in contact with with us who we recognize has a need, especially the poor, the forgotten, the oppressed, the marginalized, and the irreligious. Make no mistake about it. The early Christians 
turned their culture upside down, not only because they loved God passionately, and they did, but also because they loved people intentionally. And that's what the Apostle John was getting at when he wrote the church. And he says, he says let, us not, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Along with that, as fellow Christians, we need to love one another. And I just have to tell you, um, for me, as I look around at the whole Christian church scene in America, the fighting, the arguing, the dividing, the consumerism, the complaining, the, the negative, critical snarkiness that has come to characterize the Christian church in America is embarrassing. And not only embarrassing, it is detrimental to the cause of Jesus. Because I tell you what, our culture looks at the church and says, it's a joke. They say, look, you guys say you want to love us. You don't even love each other. You can't even get along. And it's true. As Christians, as, as the body of Christ, we should be living with each other in such a gracious, loyal, forgiving, caring, selfless, demonstrative way that the people around us look and, and say, man, those guys at Parkview, man, they really care about each other. They, they, they really do. And, and, and suddenly that's the kind of community that they want to be part of. It's appealing. It's attractive. Jesus put it this way. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. For by this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Living in a way that convinces also means that we have to know the truth. In a secularized culture where truth is a precious commodity, as Christians, we need to understand what God, our creator, has said about himself, about our world, about us, about sin, about life, death, right, wrong, heaven, hell. We need to know that, uh, what Jesus taught about grace. And how do we know that truth? By studying God's word. By studying it on our own, in our own personal devotional life. By studying it in life groups, together with some other Christians. Uh, we, 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 we learn it by studying together here on Sunday morning in a big, big giant group. And then as we learn and as we grow in our understanding of what Jesus taught and this idea of grace and, and rescue, then what we do is we go out and we share what we know. We share it appropriately, we share it humbly, compassionately, preferably in the context of healthy, authentic relationships. That's what we do. Listen, God never calls us to go out and argue and humiliate and intimidate or manipulate people in the kingdom. But he does say, go and share what you know, what you know to be true. Tell them of my love, tell them of, of grace, tell them of what is found and experienced in Jesus. Share your story, share your life. And don't demand that people believe, but invite them to. And then finally, uh, if we're going to impact our culture, we all need to get involved in the cause. Uh, this week, my daughter um, invited me to go with her to uh, the Northwestern Minnesota basketball game. Um, having gone there, she's a big Wildcat fan, and so she said, Dad, come up and go to the game with me. So I did. We went up and as I was sitting on sort of the midcourt line watching the game, um, I realized how much I really love basketball. Um, I played through high school and college. I coached in high school for a number of years, including here at Glenbard West for, I think, five years. But I also realized there's some frustrating things about basketball. Um, 
for one, from a player's perspective, only five players can be in the game at, at, at a time. That's it. And so as a player, it's really hard to sit on the bench when you know, or at least you think, you can contribute to the win. You know, you can make a difference in the game. I mean, any true player wants to be in. No, nobody wants to be left out. From a coaching perspective, knowing who should be in the game at any given time isn't easy because different athletes have different strengths and different abilities, different roles to play. Knowing, knowing who to play, when to play them, how long to play them is a, is a constant challenge. And I suppose that's why I appreciate the church so much because unlike basketball, there is no limit to the players who can be in the game. The team is made up of men, women, students from all walks of life who bring to the floor a variety of strengths and abilities, and everybody, everybody can be in the game together. And that's a good thing because the contest we're in is not a sporting struggle, it's a spiritual struggle with an awful lot at stake, life and death, eternity. And I can't, I can't speak for all of you, but from a player's perspective, I want to be in the action. I want to be contributing. I want to be part of the win. From a coach's perspective, I need to say to those of you who consider yourself Christians and who are, who are in the game, working hard, being involved, contributing to the team, keep it up, man. You're doing great. But to those of you who call your Christians, yourselves Christians and you're sitting on the sidelines, I got to say this, get off the bench. Get off the bench, get in the game. Get involved in the cause. For Christ's sake and the sake of our culture, give of yourself and serve. Somewhere, somehow, use your strengths, your talents, your resources and contribute. God wants you to. He's gifted you to. The team needs you to. And some soul may be lost without you. Listen, we are we gotta we gotta move out of out of denial here. We are living in a secularizing culture. And yet it's a culture filled with men and women, friends and family who are spiritually wanting. They're searching for meaning, they're searching for truth, they're searching for answers, they're searching for God. And so it's time that we open our eyes. Open our eyes as the church and look out and look around us in the midst of cultural confusion and brokenness. People are racing toward eternity. And as followers of Jesus, as the church, as those who have experienced God's love and grace, we can make a difference. We can. We can, like the first church, have a positive, favorable, spiritual impact on our culture and turn our world, or at least our little corner of it, upside down. And that's what I want to do. And that's what I want us to do. But more importantly than me, that's what God wants us to do. And do it together. And I hope you'll join me in the adventure. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at the culture in which we live, I pray that you would pull your people out of denial and recognize the secularizing of America. And yet at the same time, the spiritual hunger and thirst of the people all around us is increasing, recognizing that all the, all the promises of government, all the promises of religion fail us and they're debilitating and they're disappointing. And people are looking for answers, they're looking for truth and your word tells us that in Jesus, your love and grace is applied and changes us from the inside out and gives us new life both here in this world and in the world to come. 
We are forgiven, our sins removed, and we are become your children, your family. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as individuals, as families, and as a church to begin to open our eyes to look outward, to look at the people around us, and to seek to love them as you love them. Might we care, Lord, as you care. And may we make a difference in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one thing that I've learned to be, to be true over, over the years of, of being a pastor is that uh, our, our, our communities, our neighborhoods, our cities, our culture, our world uh, is going to be changed one person at a time, one life at a time, a life that you touch a life that I touch for Jesus, a life that we as a church reach out to and minister to and love one person at a time. And um, th- that's our, our desire, to make, make that kind of a difference in the lives of not just one, but as many people as we can. Tonight, I, I hope you c- can come back tonight at 6 o'clock because we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about what are some specific ways we're going to try to do that moving forward as, as a church. Uh, we have some ideas and some plans uh, in place that we want to share and talk about uh, that I'm excited about and I think will help us uh, moving forward to become uh, uh, an even, uh, have an even greater impact on our communities. So uh, I hope you can come back and join me tonight at 6 o'clock. Why don't you stand? I'm going to pray for us. And now, Father, I ask that um, as we, your people, your church, Uh, As we've come, we've learned, we've thought, we've prayed, we've sung, worshipped you. And now as we leave this place, may we we go recognizing uh, the things that people believe and think. And may we go and and interact and, 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 and raise questions and conversations that cause people to think. But most importantly, Lord, may we live our lives in such a way that convinces people of the gospel of grace. May we love you and love others. May we love each other in a way that's appealing and unique to our community with grace and forgiveness. Uh, Lord, may we know the truth, may we speak the truth uh, and share our stories with the world. And in process, may we all be involved in this this movement of your spirit, both here and around the world, uh, to bring the news of grace to people who need to hear. Now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your people as we go our own way this morning. Bring us back safely tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you tonight.